0: Ooh, Good. Uh, uh, hey. Uh, welcome to you know another episode of the Teachers Lounge. I'm your host Prince Jackson, and I'm here today with Coach Seho. How you doing, Coach?
1: I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. I was. It's funny because like um, when I started here in January, I was like, okay, I really need to like interview him because you've been around a while, like 20 years. teaching lasts a long time
1: (laughs) yes I'm a dinosaur
0: oh yeah but no thanks for being here and yeah so first where did you go to college
1: I went to college at the University of Florida in Gainesville
0: okay cool
1: and I pursued my education degree there and I Mm -hmm. actually got my master's in education there too
0: oh okay so what was like um so you did like um I know you were a PE teacher, so did you study, like, physical education there as well, or was that...
1: Not at all. Okay. I never thought I'd be a PE teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. I was into being a classroom teacher, mm-hmm. and so I was certified K-6 in Florida and uh, went immediately after I graduated college and worked at the school that a student taught at, Duval Elementary. Okay. I was a third-grade teacher there
0: and that was in Florida
1: that was in Gainesville Florida yep
0: okay and that was like immediately after you graduated and was that just like half a year a whole year that or? was a
1: whole year 2001 2002 school year was my first official year
0: ah, yep. man. okay so let's talk about that first official year what was you said you did third grade teaching what was that like that adjustment
1: it was it was unbelievable uh well I'd student taught there before mm-hmm. so so I knew the the staff, I knew the admin. They knew me. They actually offered me a job before I took my master's year, and I declined cause I, wisely, uh, because I wisely, because getting that, I didn't want want to go go back to school after yeah. I'd started working. Yeah. So I got there at, at Duval Elementary, super challenging school, had a lot of. Um, a lot of barriers they it was on the east side of town which historically was where your African American population in Gainesville was concentrated at and we were pretty much 90% African American school uh title 1 school we had you know almost 90% of our kids were free and reduced lunch and there were definitely uh you know, there was a lot of poverty at the school. A lot of kids uh, coming to school with you know, hungry or, you know, in tattered clothes. So not rural per se, because we were still in uh, Gainesville, Florida, but a lot of those kids were kind of off as a, on, literally on the other side of the tracks. You cross the railroad tracks to get to that school and boom, there you were. Um, we were what was a, a D school. And then Florida, they had a, letter grading system for the schools. So A, top performing testing schools to F, and we were a D school. So we had a lot, of, a lot of challenges, but that said, it was a great atmosphere. I mean, as a young teacher, you're just fired up. You got a lot of energy. You know, I was 24 years old. I was in the building all the time. Uh, in that school, the Florida schools, a lot of windows. Uh, You had doors that accessed the outside, so I would literally break into my classroom because my principal was basically telling me, hey, you need to stop coming to work on the weekends. Uh, You need to get your work done by 5 o'clock and leave, and I just couldn't, so I remember covering the sensor, the motion sensor, with like a plastic Tupperware, and i duct tape it on Friday before I left, and... I would come back on Saturday morning and I just would work. I just couldn't, I didn't have enough time to get work done. It was, I I didn't know how anybody got all their work done. So yeah, I was a maniac. I just would would work uh, all the time. But yeah, I I, I had a great year there, met a lot of cool people, cut my teeth there. And then at the end of that year, I just wanted to leave Florida. Ah. So that's why I ended up in Asheville.
0: Well, so really quick, did anything ever come of that, breaking into the school
1: (laughs) absolutely not no one ever knew what I was doing because there was not a soul (laughs) was anywhere near the campus uh on those Saturdays and Sundays when I went uh because everybody was you know doing their thing meanwhile you know I was just hustling
0: that's funny that's hilarious so now you also mentioned that like students um they would come in and have like tethered clothes or tethered clothes and like some probably like they were going through stuff at home. Like as a first-year teacher, what like how was uh how did you handle those situations?
1: Well, I didn't know what I was doing half the time. So for me, at that point in time in my career, all I could do was try my best to make class as interesting as possible for the kids. So I tried to have lots of hands-on projects, things that I've been working at in college. And I brought those in. Uh, Just remember doing science experiments. uh, And I did have a really good team I was a part of.
0: Hey, Mr. Biffield, the assistant principal walked in.
1: (laughs) I had a really good team I was a part of. So I really leaned on them to guide me. And set the curriculum pacing, and so they they really uh, helped me out a lot. But but yeah, I, I just tried to make it as fun as exciting as possible, um, and and keep the kids you know interested in school as much as we could, and try to minimize distractions.
0: Okay, well, okay, um, and it's it's cool. It's funny that you mentioned like a team because I feel like that's something that. I didn't talk about enough or like hear about enough. It's like working with like your cohort that is like extremely important, especially in teaching, just bouncing ideas off of each other. Like, Hey, I'm having trouble with this thing. Like, what do you think about that? Like, that's extremely helpful. And when I learned that, like to not be so like, um, I don't know, try not to do everything myself. Like it's okay to ask for help. Like I thought that was, I don't know. That was just a good lesson. I feel like so you're in Florida and you said you wanted to just get out of Florida. Was there, was it just like time to change a little bit? Like uh, what made you want to get away from Florida?
1: Well, I had just gotten out of a long relationship with someone and I went from being a college person and I was still living in my college rental. So I was near campus and I just became a, you know, Professional, and I was not happy living in a college town anymore because people were up late, uh, traffic with the students, uh, the mentality was not, you know, lending itself it, it, from where I was at mm-hmm. to being a professional. So I called up a buddy of mine who'd made an offer to me. Uh, he was in a band I was in with him, my drummer. He's like, hey, man, I'm in Asheville. Uh, there's a spot opening up, a third grade position at the school I'm working at. I need a roommate. And I, I took him up on the offer, and I just packed a U-Haul and just drove up here. And I applied for the job, and I was able to get it. Oh, And so uh, it was, you know, a little bit of a leap of faith because – you know, prior to the interview I had to wait until uh late July and I, I got up here uh right at the end of May, early June. So for those first several weeks I was just kinda hanging out, getting the lay of the land.
0: Okay. So you were gonna move here regardless. It was just like
1: Yes, yeah. I was gonna move here. Uh I had I had sent resumes to all the different schools just in case, but the Hall Fletcher was the one that I had my eye on, especially since the house I was living in with uh, my roommate, he was was two blocks away. So it, was, it would have been, you know, and it, it was ideal uh, for me to get the job here.
0: Well, cool. Okay, so how was that adjustment coming to teach in a completely new state? Like, have you had you vacation here at all? Did you know about the place at all? Or?
1: Yeah, I'd been here before. Um, I'd gotten some, you know, Asheville's changed a lot in twenty years. So when I first got here, it was a lot quieter, a lot sleepier, a little more hippie, (laughs) nowhere near as many uh, young people I felt as there are now. Uh, And so it was, I I did like the beauty and I did like that it was the total opposite of Florida. And I was looking forward to a change in the seasons and the weather and the topography and, uh, you know, just a new challenge, new adventure. So that's what drew me here.
0: Okay, cool, cool, cool. So you said that um, you liked Nashville, you liked the location, the scene. Um, So yeah, what was that first year teaching in Nashville like?
1: Well, I learned the valuable lesson, uh, which is when you think you got it figured out, think again, because every year you're gonna get a new group of kids. So what was working with that first year, when I got here, I tried to use some of those same ideas, some of those same lessons, and some of them fell flat. And I was like, huh, why is that? And, you know, you don't have a lot of time to reflect. And teachers uh, really need to do that. Uh, Reflect on what went wrong. Where was the mistake in this lesson? It's real easy to blame the kids. But the reality is you need to start with yourself first and foremost and say, honestly, what did I do on this lesson? Why didn't it work? How come everyone didn't pass this test that I gave? And it really does fall back on the teacher's shoulders. It's your job to... Get this content into their heads, and to make this work, so that's the challenge: is making sure that you're meet, meeting everyone's needs, even though they all come to you with such different needs. Uh, and that's that's why this job is super hard.
0: Yeah, and like so, and whenever you talk to you talk about reflecting, like, what's one of the, um, I guess you know, whenever you reflect, what are some things that you saw, like, that you looked for most? Like, okay, was it like, um, uh, sorry, I'm, like, uh, figuring out the best way to say the question. It's like, uh, um, for example, whenever you reflect, it's not just on, like, like, you look back on, like, the lesson and stuff, but is it, like, do you look at, like, um, you know, how, like, teaching different kids, like, did you have to, like, do, like, the same lesson plan three different ways for, like, particular for this class just because so many kids needed help in different ways or like what did you you know what helped you in your reflecting I guess
1: well the the first thing is you have to make time for it because it's hard to reflect during the school day Uh, that's something you want to do afterwards right when you have a moment of calm and time to think and then it's just looking at how successful certain things were so you know, maybe you got a lesson going and the kids are all talking and they're they're not focused on it and then they're not interested and then, or maybe you gave an assessment and everyone failed the assessment and you're like, well, dang, you know, can't be that they're all (laughs) idiots and they don't know what's going on. It's, there had to be something wrong with the assessment. Then you got to look at the assessment and then think about how you taught it and maybe, okay, maybe I could have done something different. Uh, so it, it really, it applies to anything that you're doing that you just didn't feel as successful at. And also like, uh, you know, you could also reflect when, when something did go well. Wow, that went really well. These guys really liked that lesson. And then you want to gravitate towards that again and be like, all right, let's do that again. You know, let's, let's, let's keep on making these kids feel successful and feeling good about learning. So that when you do challenge them, they won't give up as easy. Uh, You want to make sure that they can be successful to keep on being successful.
0: I see. And so um, you said that, and you figured that, like, your second year, you was like, your second year teaching was your first year in Nashville. And you were like, you think you got it figured out that you don't. And so... um, you know, you went on and you taught third grade. How much longer did you teach third grade after that?
1: So I taught third grade for five years here. Okay. Which, again, if, if, if you're able to stay in the same grade, uh, a lot of ad- admin, foolishly, I feel, move people around too much. Mm. You really don't get good at teaching until year four, five, six. That's when you start to get better. You know, your first few years, you're just trying to survive. You just got to make sure that you even want to teach. And if after year three, you're still feeling miserable and you don't know what you're doing, then you should just get out Mm. flatly because where are you going to go, right? Uh, But, yeah, you're not really getting good until you're – year seven really, I felt like for me, was something big. So I went from – I taught five years of third grade. Then I did fifth grade which was a big change, just developmentally, everything was, was, was great. But it was, it was good. I really liked the, the age group. So I did that for five years. And then when we got a new admin, they wanted to try looping, which is when you stay with the kids and you follow them through grade levels. So they bumped me down to fourth, and I looped up to fifth with the same kids. So I had the same kids for two years, but I had them from fourth to fifth. And that was extremely challenging. On many levels, it was awesome because I really established these real deep connections with these kids. But towards the end, I told myself I I didn't want to do that again because it was just frustrating for some... I I had a particularly difficult class, which was why they wanted me to loop Mm. because they felt that this group would benefit from having me two years in a row and my teammate two years in a row. And it was just super challenging because I was straight up tired <laughs> of dealing with some of these kids and their parents some of the parents I was like yikes I've had a relationship with you for two years it's been rocky I'm ready to move on to some new families and new people so then I I I kind of vacillated between fifth and fourth until I finally got the PE job
0: so is that a looping thing is that a normal thing that they do like I've never heard of that before that's why
1: yeah it's it's a thing that Depending on who the admin is, uh, is uh, something that has been tried, uh, and and it's it's successful when everything works out when the the teachers and the families and the kids are all on board. I think it's very powerful. Um, again, for me, my personal experience, I just I knew going in it was going to be a tough group, and they were challenging, and then and then it, it wasn't also fulfilled to the to the best of the, uh, uh, or the, rather to the, the ideal that it was set for. So for instance, midway through, I switched, my, my partner switched. So the other group of kids thought they were looping and they ended up getting a new teacher in fifth grade. Mm. Meanwhile, I was the one who did stay with the group. So it was it was a little weird. It didn't work as well for the grade level as, as it was planned.
0: Oh, uh, that's, I mean, I could see how, like, in theory, it's like, oh, that's a great idea, but I can see how it would be exhausting for the teacher as well. Also, something I didn't realize is teachers do so much more work. Like, people say it a lot. Like, a lot of people say, like, yeah, teachers work very hard, long hours, but when I, like, I remember being here in January, and honestly, like, being my first job, I was really, like like you said, just trying to survive, And I, but I would walk around a lot and see people just, like, Working all the time, like during lunch break, um, during whatever break they get, they're trying to figure out the next thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the thing that irks me, you know, when you talk to someone who's down on education, like ah, oh, you know, you're there from eight to three, ha ha ha. And then the analogies I like to present to them are like, okay, well, think of it this way: you're performing from eight to three. So for you know, musicians, actors, you know, you're you're performing from eight to three, but you're rehearsing. During the other times. And you got to rehearse to get good at something. So you can't just show up at 8 o'clock and just pull something, you know, out of a file cabin and say, okay, we're doing this. You've got to prepare mentally for that day. Well, spend a day with a bunch of 8-year-olds and see how fresh your mind feels by 3 o'clock. It doesn't. So now you've got to will yourself, you know, from 3 to 5, to try and get work done, to prepare for tomorrow's performance. And so that's why for me, I worked better on weekends because I would go hard you know, from 8 to 3. Then I'd you know, maybe do an hour's worth of work to wrap up the day, clean up the room, really. Mm-hmm. And then on the weekends, I would get more done in a three-hour period than I could on a Sunday morning when I was fresh than I could when I was after school because my brain wasn't exhausted from being with kids all day. So that's a, a, a real thing. The preparation you have to put in just like to anything else is is really important. And then also people, oh, you know, they get paid this and, and then, you know, they, they only work, you know, 10 months out of the year. It's like, well, you got to remember you don't get paid in the summer. So unless you're very good at saving your pennies, uh, throughout the year so that you don't have to work in the summer. Most teachers have to work in the summer at some kind of, you know, retail job or a bartend or something. So it's pretty sad that a job as important as this isn't respected enough to be given a living wage for an entire year. Um, it's, it just speaks, I feel, to the priorities of of this country and what's going on, because it's not like that in a lot of other countries, and I have friends who taught internationally, and it's almost a reverence for educators. You where do they teach? Uh, I had a friend who taught in Thailand. I had a friend who taught in China and in Egypt. And the reverence, the respect paid to the teachers is, is unbelievable. You know, it's, it's like almost to like a, a person who's in, in, in power – they they speak so highly of the teacher, and the te- they defer to the teacher, and whatever the teacher says is the word, you know. Mm. They're not going to look at their six-year-old and say, oh, you know, I believe you over the adult. You know, it's, that's not how it was. And that's not how it was here either when I first started, and that's the thing that I've seen change is as this next generation of parents who are now in their 20s. Uh, and you know, and there's a lot of merit to what they do. There's, there's a lot of empathy and, and, and there's a a lot of things that they're teaching kids now that maybe we didn't earlier, but the whole part about siding with the kids over the teachers is a very, I feel destructive path we're going on. It really should be the teacher and the parent working together as co-parents to help this child and be on the same page. And as a teacher, you got to step up. And, yeah. and really make those connections. So you, you can't let that happen to you, mm-hmm. um, even though it happens more often now because some people's priorities or their mental makeup are just a little different.
0: What do you, like, um, so you said you, you gotta build relationships with like the parents, but um, I mean, you, I'm, uh, after teaching for like over 20 years, I mean, I imagine you've had a few parents that just weren't interested in a child's education. Like, what did you do in those situations?
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, at that point, you know, you can figure out who's in and who's out. And when they were out, when they were disconnected from their kid, then it almost got to the point where I had to as a classroom teacher say, "Okay, fine. I know that I can't call your mom or whoever's your guardian to to support what I'm trying to do here. So now I'm gonna make it so that if you don't do or, or go along with what I'm doing, if you're not willing to put in the work, then I'm just gonna have to make it so uncomfortable for you not to do the work here when you're at school that you're gonna be really bummed out if you're not listening to me. And so I had to kind of invent consequences because really with kids it's it's not super complicated you have to hold them accountable when they don't do something they have a consequence and mm-hmm. kids understand that when it's done consistently if you don't do it consistently any kid's going to learn oh pff, that guy didn't mean what he's saying you know mm-hmm. that guy's full of it but you had to really bring you had to be the parent in essence And they had to respect you. And that's like, you don't have to like me, but you got to respect me. And you got to do what I'm asking you to do. And if you choose not to do it, that's fine. You can choose not to do it. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be real uncomfortable. You're not going to get that recess time you want. You're not going to get to go to one of these, you know, parties that I set up. Because I set up a lot of positive uh, rewards that were very attainable. You know, it's one thing to make something unattainable. But it's like, hey, man you showed up, you participated in the activity, awesome, we're going to do this cool thing. It's like, oh, you showed up, you chose not to participate, you can't do that cool thing, now you're going to have to do this other thing. And so I I really set it up so that they had to learn about consequences.
0: Yeah, and consequences also, like, um, i had I talked to someone else on the podcast about paddling, and so like seeing how consequences have evolved over time is um I don't know it's, it, I think it's crazy like what worked back then definitely would not fly now like what are some of the craziest consequences you've seen as a teacher over the years?
1: well seeing um you know this teaching world you're you're so insular you're you're kind of in your own world. So you don't get to see as much as you think from Uh. other people. I mean, I've seen some teachers maybe go a little far with uh, putting their hands on kids, uh, maybe in appropriate ways. Uh, And and by that, I mean, like, maybe they they grab a kid by the shirt, you know, and jerk them and be like, hey, get over here. Or I remember my first year of student teaching, I saw this guy just get in this kid's face, but it was a little excessive. Like, he, he pushed him up against the wall, and he put his finger right on his nose and was just, like, yelling at him. And I was like, uh, that seems a little excessive. It seems a little old school. Uh, it, it got the message across. I mean, this kid was scared, but at the same time, I'm like, is that what I want to do? I don't think I want to do that. Um, I was more of a, you earn it. You know, I used to have the system where I paid the kids using this this kind of funny money that I made up. It's like Monopoly money. Oh, yeah. And they would earn it. You know, so it's like for my fifth graders, I kind of started doing that because they understood the concept of money a little better. And, you know, cool, you got all your homework assignments done. You got all this stuff. Boom, here you go. You got paid this money. And then conversely, when they didn't do stuff, when they were misbehaving, I taxed them. I was like, "Yo, you just got taxed," and they would either have to give me money, and then of course some kids are like, "Well, I'm just not going to pay you," and I said, "That's fine. I'm just going to withhold it from your paycheck," and because I would I would give them a weekly paycheck that you know accounted for all the money that they'd earned, yeah. and then I'd had a store in my classroom where they could buy stuff, and they were the ones who chose all the things they wanted to buy. So, you know, I had pencils, erasers, notebooks. And little trinkets and toys. And, you know, it's unbelievable how much these kids will fight over a meaningless little trinket to us. But to them, it's like, whoa, you know, I really want this thing. So I set up this kind of class economy, which then also doubled as a math lesson. Because I'd have them balance their budgets, adding, subtracting, stuff like that. So those are kind of just creative ways to incorporate your education plan, as well as your classroom management plan.
0: Oh yeah, and also I feel like the money, like giving those kids like some real world like tips, like oh, I just got tagged because I did this bad thing, or you know, like, like that. That's all relevant. No, that was great. I've never heard of that before, so that's cool.
1: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll search here. There's a a great book. Um, for some people, that might be a little too much. Uh, But there was a a great book that I read uh, right when I got to fifth grade. And uh, this guy, um, he was a maniac. Uh, He was, he was this, this teacher out in uh, California, uh, teach like your hair's on fire by Rafe Esquith. Um, That's the author. And I learned so much from this guy. There was some stuff I just couldn't do because this guy—he uh, was—he was what you'd call the the, the superstar rock star teacher, but almost to a fault because he wasn't quite the team player. And I felt I found myself falling into that trap too. When I was, you know, when I got to that point in my teaching career, I was kind of like, "Oh, these people around me aren't doing as well as I am. I'm doing better." I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and forget about them. And so later on, that kind of wasn't the best, you know, thing. But at the time, I thought, okay, that's the way I'm going to do it. And this guy was taking his kids on trips. So I took my kids on trips. I took them to Washington, D.C. every year. We did rafting trips. Uh, This guy, he was the one who taught me about the classroom economy. Okay, cool. I'm going to set up that classroom economy. He set up all these different things that I was emulating Um, But the thing that I I felt was unrealistic was, A, the amount of time this guy had to do all these things. I mean, this guy was not uh, married and didn't have kids, to my knowledge, if I remember reading the book correctly. Well, when I got married and had kids, it changed a lot of things as far as my time. And, yeah, he wasn't really including his, his staff teammates. He wasn't really bringing in his team to elevate them. So... Those are some cons I would say to the book. So it's a it's a good read for any teacher. You'll get you'll glean some stuff out of it. Um, but I just thought those were two of the pro and con takeaways on that book.
0: Right. So you, you mentioned like taking the kids on field trips and stuff, like and to D C like you know, I think about being a high school venerator and taking kids like high schoolers, like kids who kinda know us up, they're older, they've been through school. What was that like? Taking elementary kids like around the country?
1: <laughs> it was at the time amazing because I had the energy. I was younger. I didn't have uh, my child, my first child yet. As I got into it more and I learned how to do it, it became easier, just like anything else. And mm-hmm. when you get lessons and you do activities that you find are successful year in and year out, they just become easier to roll out. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. Towards the end, the last year I did it, I was getting a little tired of it, and mainly because of the fundraising, mm-hmm. because that was really the barrier—was uh, trying to help pay for this trip. Now, mind you, I—I I, I was able to get kids to go on a four-day DC trip for about two to three hundred bucks.
0: Um, they had to pay. That
1: they had to f- pay you know, which I thought was a great deal. That included all their food, the travel. We took a coach bus. You know, we we stayed at a nice hotel. We got to do all the tours, everything. So, but it was still really hard for a lot of our families. You know, that, that, that sounds cheap to you and I, but when you've got a mom who's single, who's got five kids, and one of her kids is in my class, you know, it was a big thing. So we did a lot of fundraisers. Uh, you know, we didn't have GoFundMe's back then; <laughs> that would have been a lot easier. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we we that the money part of it was always, to me, the drag, and that's what eventually, um, when I got to PE, I, 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 was like, well, I don't have to do those kind of trips anymore. <laughs> mm.
0: So, so and what like. So you taught in the classroom for here in Asheville for about 14 years. Right. And then you switched to PE. Correct. So what made you switch to being a PE teacher?
1: Well, two things. One, I was pretty much at the end of my rope being in the classroom. Hmm. Because, yeah, 14 years Asheville plus that one in in Gainesville. And that's where a lot of teachers start to to wane. Once you start to that 10-year period – You kind of start doing some assessment. A lot of people start to leave. They get jaded. Um, I, at that point, we had our second child. And our second child was born with Down syndrome. And then suddenly my life was a lot different. I was like, wow, I've got to give even more time to my family. I don't have the time to come in on the weekends anymore to get work done. I don't have the energy to deal with what i'm seeing as a shift from parents and so i was looking for a way out i was fortunate to be here when our pe teacher retired or left and i said hey to my principal please help me get this job you know i want to do this i want to stay working i need to get to my 20 years because You know, they dangled that pension in front of you.
0: So what is that exactly?
1: And so your pension, you know, pre-1980, 78% of Americans had a pension, which was your company would provide you with retirement plans that were going to last you until your last dying breath. So an American worker working at GM or Ford uh, back in the, 50s, 60s, 70s, they could work an X amount of years, and then you earn your pension. That, you're, you're, all the time, your company had been putting money into an account for you, literally you know, just an investment account that they would then hand over to the worker. You know, It was part of what made America pretty amazing during that time is companies did that. Well, that shifted, and fortunately, in the teaching profession, that's still a thing, and so when I got into our system, I was putting money into that pension system all this time. So I knew that I had to get to a certain benchmark year to, to, to earn that. So I knew I had six more, and I was like, how am I going to do this? So going, in, going into PE was, was perfect because you still had to perform, right, So mm-hmm. which I could still do. I, I could still show up, perform for the kids, meaning – get the lesson across to them, be around them, you know, be patient with them, help them out. But the preparation was totally different. I'm no longer doing assessments. I'm no longer doing end-of-grade tests. I'm no longer doing homework. I'm no longer having to really make those types of connections with the parents in my particular class because now I teach all the kids and I'm only seeing them for 45 minutes. So it was a a whole different mind shift. Now, I did have to learn all the kids' names. Mm -hmm. I had to now make a relationship with all 300 children in the building, which took time and was stressful the first few years because it was harder with the older kids. Well, actually, it was harder with the younger kids because I didn't know any of them, and I hadn't worked with younger kids. I hadn't worked in K2. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to work with them, which is a lot different. Mm -hmm. But it it bought me that time and then at the same time it also reinvigorated me to learn something new because I like to learn new things. I like to think of myself as a lifelong learner. So it was cool to learn about PE. It was cool and I'm naturally an athlete anyways and I stay in shape and I love to move. So it made all the sense in the world to be a PE teacher.
0: Um, yeah. So did you have did it did you have to go back to school to do that at all? Or?
1: all I had to do for Asheville City Schools was take a praxis. Ah. so I had to take the physical education praxis. My K six certification allowed me to work with those kids. So it was it was a smooth transition.
0: Oh, that's really smooth. No more school. Was there a lot of studying involved for that test? Or? Uh
1: I'm a good test taker and the test was worded multi you know, it was multiple choice and so I knew some of the stuff. I think most people would have known some of the stuff. if They use common sense. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of studying for certain aspects that I wasn't familiar with, but I was able to. I was a little stressed about it, but you know, I passed it on the first time, so I was very happy.
0: Oh, that's cool. Um, so, all right, so twenty years. That's (laughs) I'm like, I'm six months in. I'm like, this was a long time. (laughs) I think. Um, but what do you like? What advice would like? If you could go back and talk to young Coach Seho, what would you tell yourself?
1: So this is something that I've written down and I give to anyone that I meet typically when I, you know, talk to them about teaching and getting started. The first three things. So three things really. Number one, consistency. You have to be consistent. It's the hardest thing. It's so easy to say, okay, kids, you know, if, if you guys don't, aren't quiet, you know, I, I'm going to do this. And then five seconds later, forget that you said that. And the kids pick that up. And they're like, oh, this person doesn't mean what they say. Whether it be consistent with your classroom discipline, whether it be consistent with how you send work home, with how you interact with your parents, you have to be consistent in all facets when you first start out. So that would be number one. Number two is Go into your school, into your building and establish relationships with all the support staff, meaning cafeteria, your custodial workers and the people in the front office, because those people can make or break you. Custodial staff. Work hard with them on, hey, go reach out to them and ask them what they need you know, from you because they're not used to that. And all of a sudden, you're gonna make friends real quick. And then next thing you know, when you need something, they're gonna come in and they're gonna help you out. Same thing with cafeteria staff. You go in there and you say, hey, how can I help you know, with my kids in the lunch line? You know, what do you need from me? You do that, next thing you know, you know, when they have extra slice of pie, you might get a little extra slice of pie. It sounds silly, but it's, it's so true. And also your office staff, Hey, what what do you need from me? You know, how do you need your attendance done? How do you need the bookkeeping done? Because those are things, they seem meaningless. They don't seem important, but they are very important to them because that's how they stay employed. They need to make sure their books are accounted for. They need to make sure the attendance is done. So you got to make sure that you do those things. And those people are going to help you out and they become sometimes even really good friends. So I would say number two, really reach out to that support staff, get in with them and help them out. And then the third one is keep it simple. You, as a first year teacher, you come out of college, you've got all these ideas. You say, oh, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do this and that and the other. And you need to really focus on the basics. Focus on adhering to your schedule. Focus on time management and classroom management. Focus on doing what you need to do that's required by your admin. Whether it's, this is the reading program we're doing, this is the math I expect you to do. Keep it simple. Because really that just boils down to your fundamentals. In any profession, whether you're a musician, you can try and solo for 30 seconds, but if you don't have the basic understanding of the scales and your fundamentals to play them accurately and to hit those notes, it's going to sound like crap. You know, if you're a football player, you, you can make a, a leaping one-handed catch. That's wonderful. But if you can't make a basic catch with two hands, secure the ball and, and tuck it in, you're not going to last long in the league. Because you can't do the basic stuff. So focus on the fundamentals. Keep it simple. You'll have time to get to the, all those great ideas. Trust me. They're, the school year is long, <laughs> and you will have time to get to all these wonderful things. But you gotta, you gotta work on the basics. And I think if you can do those three things, and then you get to the end of the year, and you're like, "Wow, I want to do this again," then you're in good shape.
0: Go. Oh, that's all. That's great advice, and it's all true. I can like, yeah, I've seen all of those, like everything you just said was very accurate. And I feel like it'll help like any young teacher, any young teacher. But no, I mean, got anything else that you want to mention uh, uh, for the group?
1: Uh, Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, I am also a real estate agent, so if you want to buy a house or get any advice on – properties here in western north carolina hit me up 828-273-6164 my name is tommy Sejo i work for the hinton realty group would love to help you
0: out oh no that's great and also congratulations on your retirement thank you sir i appreciate oh, yeah. it all right thanks everybody i hope you enjoyed this episode of the teacher's lounge and yeah take care have a great day